Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Medicine Path is an ongoing series of intimate and engaging conversations exploring the intersections of spirituality, psychology, and psychedelics, with the intention of providing inspiration and guidance as we walk together on this journey of individual and collective healing and transformation. This podcast is entirely listener-supported, and there are many ways to contribute. You can make a one-time donation via PayPal, become a monthly Patreon subscriber, leave a review on iTunes, or share it with your friends. You can find out more at medicinepathpodcast.com forward slash support. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with New Jersey-based yoga therapist and teacher trainer, Danielle Tarantola. A few years ago, I took a Vedic chanting course with Danielle, and I appreciated her dedication to preserving this tradition and her ability to transmit what she's learned from her teachers with clarity, respect, humor, and attention to detail. In our conversation, Danielle shares the story of her journey from studying anthropology in Boston to becoming a yoga teacher in New York, traveling to India to study yoga at the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram, which led her to meeting TKV Desikachar, a pioneer of accessible and therapeutic yoga. And she shares two personal stories that beautifully illustrate Desikachar's personalized approach to teaching and his belief that yoga is relationship. 
It's always a real joy for me to be able to connect with folks who have learned directly from TKV Desukachar, who is probably my biggest inspiration as a yoga teacher. And I'm happy to share this conversation with you in the hope that it will offer you some inspiration, whether you're a yoga teacher or a yoga practitioner. By the end of our time together, I felt like Danielle and I were just getting started. So I hope to continue this conversation with her in the future and talk more about yoga therapy, Vedic chanting, and working as a community-based independent yoga teacher. Now please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Danielle Tarantola on The Medicine Path. Okay, I'm going to try and get your name right, and you can correct me, okay? <laughs> I'm here with Danielle Tarantola. You got it. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, your memory thanks. is good. <laughs> thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's a joy to be here. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I was wondering if it would be appropriate to start our conversation with a chant. Sure. You'd be willing to do that for us? Mm-hmm. That actually ran through my mind when I thought about our session today, that it would be great to start with a chant. Great. Yeah. When, um, when I interviewed <clears throat> Srivatsa Ramaswamy, he started uh, with a chant and he starts everything with a chant. Uh, He's Indian. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Know, I think that if you're still connected to your culture, and you're Indian, it is the way to begin everything. There are mantras that you would practice before eating, upon rising, before going to sleep. So it's such an integral part of their ritualistic culture. Hmm. Is that something that you've adopted in your life? Mm-hmm. I certainly have. You know, I, I think that... In, we were just talking or you were just experiencing before we started recording um, sort of a class situation that I was in and being a yoga guide, instructor, instructor, teacher, yoga therapist these days can be very Vata deranging. Even for someone like myself, I have a center, like I have a school, I have a yoga therapy center. There is so much going on around. So I'm sure to incorporate into my life, grounding rituals regularly from morning until night so that I can stay centered, grounded, and as clear as I could be so that I can serve my, my purpose, you know, my dharma. Yeah. If I if I'm not there, then it will not my students and I think this is true for, for all students, whether they themselves have done the work or not, they can pick up when we're not in our center. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well let's take an opportunity to find our center. Let's do it. So I will actually start with the Krishnamacharya invocation, because that is the lineage that I align with. That's where I've learned all that I know in yoga. And from what I know of this invocation, Krishnamacharya was asked by his students 
sir or professor, as many of them called him, before we do our studies, uh, we'd like to honor you. How can we do that? So this is the chant that he came up with. He actually authored it. And it's basically saying, this is the star that I was born underneath. These are my teachers and let's honor them, that, and all the teachers who've come before to keep alive, his teachings alive. Beautiful. Shri Krishna Vagi Shayati Shvarabhyam Samprapta Chakram Karna Bhashya Saram Shri Nut Narangendrayatausamarpitasvam Shri Krishna Maryam Guru Varyami De Virodhe Kartike Masse Shatatara Krutodayam Yoga Charyam Krishna Maryam Guru Varyam Aham Bhaje Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha Thank you. There he is. Well, I'm happy that you chose that one because uh, it's a chant that I learned some years ago. Uh, and I, I love to chant it to, as an opportunity for me to honor the tradition that I also have learned a lot in. Um, but also as a way to talk about my teachers, as an excuse to talk about them um, and to bring them into the room. Uh, but it's good to have your recording because you're so precise with your pronunciation. That's one of the things I really appreciate about you is uh, when I did a, um, an online course with you a few years ago, I guess, it just really helped me to fine tune uh, my chanting. Uh, so I'm really happy to have you here and have you share that with us. Thank you. Now, for people who might not know who you are, I wondered if you could start just by telling us who you are and uh, what you do. Sure, I would love to. So I am Danielle Tarantola, and I direct a yoga therapy center and a yoga school in New York in a place called Long Island. And our main work here is yoga therapy, teacher training, Vedic chanting and yoga philosophy instructions. So we are, when I say we, I mean myself and also the people that I've been training over the years are really holding the space for quite an authentic, close to the source healing yoga 
center. So the people that make their way in here for the most part come for healing and the people who stay. And the tradition that I teach in is the lineage of Krishnamacharya. And it's so I want to just say a little bit if if you don't mind of how I found this tradition. Yes. Yeah. It's well, not because I was overtly looking for for healing. Overtly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I wanted to start out by asking you, like first, even before you became aware of the tradition, or maybe this happened consecutively, but I wanted to know how you first got interested in yoga. Ooh. Okay, so I was in college. I went to Boston University and I was studying basically ethnographic film. So I was studying film and anthropology and that was my idea to synthesize this because I had a feeling that ancient cultures, at least the ones that were still surviving in, in their rituals and in their ways of life and being, could be a, a great way to heal us in modern society. And so I, to be perfectly honest, I had a boyfriend and he was in a band and he went away for the weekends to do some recording. And when he came back, he was like, Hey, listen, I learned something really cool. I started to do yoga and I said, Oh my God, great. Show it to me. Teach me, teach me what you learned. And I did. And even from that first time, something, uh, resonated with me and so i found some classes at my university it's gonna sound so fun and then uh you know i did it i was doing yoga really well you know <laughs> i could do everything just perfectly so it gave me somewhat of an ego boost at that time and also a feeling of integration and on some level and then i saw my yoga teacher in the in the liquor store on friday night and she like had this like cart full of liquor like she's got the life she teaches yoga every day she like gets drunk on the weekends and um you know that that's cool but i didn't really say oh, at that point i wanted to be a, a yoga teacher there weren't really many yoga teachers around at that point it's like in the early 90s where yoga hadn't exploded at least in that world that i lived in yet and so um, then i just went off and and, um, you know, graduated, got a job in Manhattan. And again, I was like, there's something not right about this life. I just feel like I'm, I'm kind of robotic. And so at the same time, everything in life was changing. My relationship status was changing. My job was changing. Where I was living was changing. My group of friends was changing, you know, my social circle was changing and it started to drive me uh, a, a bit crazy. You know, my emotions, I felt like were very connected to whatever was happening outside of myself. They were either up and down depending on the effect that those circumstances had on me. And I said, you know, I really got to connect to something inside of me that is un unchanging. And so that brought me back to yoga and I took my first teacher training in the city after work, you know, it was a very busy life at that point. And then I really, you know, started to get into it and 
Yeah. When, when you first started practicing, what uh, style of yoga was it? think at first it was more of the Kripalu style because I was in Massachusetts and that was sort of popular around there. And then I went to, when I went to the Manhattan, it was integral yoga. So very um, spiritual, I would say. However, spiritual from the more from the hint through the lens of Hinduism. Yeah. Because Swami Satchidananda was a wonderful teacher, but also a renunciant. So having sort of left the religion that I grew up with behind, it didn't make make me feel like I wanted to learn more of that part of it. I was like, okay, I'm going to leave that aside. Just as I understand Jessica Char did when he was learning with his father at mm-hmm. first because he was a trained engineer and he was like, don't teach me anything about God or anything. I just want to learn yoga. And there was a history of that in, in the family as well. That's like child did the same thing. Nobody wanted to learn about God in the beginning. They just wanted to learn yoga. So I felt that as well. I was like, mm-hmm. let me just leave that stuff aside for a while, the God stuff, but I'm going to take everything else. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that about you, that you were uh, into anthropo- or ethnography and mm. anthropo- I guess both, right? Ethnography and uh, anthropology go together in some ways. Yes. Yes. Um, but I also was in Boston in the early 90s. Going oh my goodness. To, I was going to music school, though, on Boylston at uh, Berkeley College of Music. Oh my goodness. And it That's- was around that time I had my first taste of yoga, too. Um, was her name Barbara? <laughs> not actually in Boston. In Boston, I would go to uh, like the YMCA. Uh-huh. And, but my first teacher was back in Canada where, I, where I'd come from. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was uh, a Dutch guy who had gone to India and spent time with Iyengar. So it was a very that kind of patriarchal, asana-focused uh-huh. approach, like yes. pushing you into perfect alignment and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I think I was a little traumatized yeah. actually by my first yoga experience, but I, I felt there was something in it for me. And I guess like you, uh, at a certain point after exploring it for, you know, 10 years or so, I actually got really turned off by the whole spiritual side of it. And yeah. I went so far as to go to Pilates for a while. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. all these benefits that I get from yoga without all this like spiritual nonsense I was hearing. In the right. Right. You know, the first time I heard, honestly, the first time I heard chanting in the class, I laughed, you know, it was just, it was like, what the hell is this? Like you guys are white. You've no association with anything Indian. And you're like speaking this language and chanting to Indian gods. Like you're singing to Indian gods. What are you doing? Like it didn't make any sense. It didn't feel authentic to me. And I guess with your background in ethnography and anthropology, maybe uh, you're a bit more aware of that kind of cultural appropriation. Appropriation. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So you're in uh, New York City, living the life, working hard. When did you get introduced to this tradition of Krishnamacharya and Desukachar? Yes. So I started to look for... Now I would say more of a one-dimensional 
yoga practice. So I started to look for something that was a little bit more physical, leave out like Pilates. You say you went to Pilates, leave out all that stuff. And vinyasa was starting to get very popular. Um, you know, I took my yoga teacher trainer degree back here to Long Island uh, and I started teaching and I took an Ashtanga class and, oh geez, met, met another guy who was the Ashtanga teacher and inappropriate in many ways became, you know, we practiced together. Let's say we practiced together and I became very hooked on Ashtanga yoga. So I went through vinyasa. I found Ashtanga yoga and it was so powerful. It was the first time I actually felt, I think what I was looking for in yoga, which was a connection to something inside of me, which was stable and steady and focused and grounded. And at that point, I started to do some research. I was like, what is this? It feels so real and it feels so authentic. And I started to learn it and I started to teach it and was turned on to the idea that this Patabi Joyce had learned with Krishnamacharya, who at the same time is famous for Ashtanga yoga and teaching Patabi Joyce in his own work, he taught individually. He taught everyone individually. So that kind of blew my mind. Like, how do you have this one practice that's popular via your influence that is one size fits all? If you're, if you're doing it in the authentic, traditional way that it's taught, it's very much one size fits all. Then you have this other side of everybody's doing their own thing. And so I was in my mid-20s and could do all of that jazz, but no one else could. So most of the people who were coming to me were not able to do that. All of those asanas, those challenging asanas. And so at that point, yoga really started to, I started to feel the intrinsic changes that I was looking for. And I said, I can't learn with anyone here. I feel like I'm, I'm doing like gymnastics and aerobics and, and dancing. Like it felt very much like that. Um, and so I'm going to go to India. So I decided to go to Mysore because that's what I knew. Then I did some research and I figured while I'm going to India, I'm going to take a while. It took four months. I was like, while I'm going to India, I'm going to also see if Krishnamacharya is, is he alive? What is he doing? And of course he wasn't alive, but I learned that there was a healing center in Chennai based on his teachings. And at some point during the time I was in India, they were doing a two-week intensive taught by Mr. Desika Char mm. called Deal, mm, Deal with the Body, Heal with the Mind. Deal so I had the, sort of... Wait, wait, deal with the Body, Heal with the Mind? Yes. Deal with the Body, Heal with the Mind. That's such a is, kind of like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a catchy marketing title, you know? Like, well, I'm kind of impressed by that. Like, it uh, yes. sounds very modern. I agree, which probably, you know, it was. Many, many people were there. So I had this very manic first experience in India. I went to Kovalam to an Ashtanga retreat. It was like in the jungle, on the oceans. Did that. Then, very beautiful. Then I went to 
beautiful. I love Chennai, but like your senses are totally assaulted. It's crowded. It's smelly. It's hot. And it's where I actually first connected to yoga in the deepest way possible. So I went with one of my very best friends. And I remember first thing we did there was inhale, go like this. Oh, for people listening, you're just bringing your thumb and forefinger together. Oh, I'm just raising my arm in front of me and touching my thumb and forefinger together. That's mm -hmm. it. And then as I exhale, I lower my hand. And then you and I, me and my, my friend and I looked at each other and we started laughing. We're like, what did we get ourselves into? What is this? <laughs> and then by the third round, I was in tears. Huh. I was in tears. So it touched my it touched my heart. It touched my heart so deeply. And that was there, there were actually, I'm going to say a sort of a, a basket of experiences that I had in that first intensive with Sir, as we lovingly call him, that really sort of em embraced me and initiated a, a over a decade of of going to India every year and learning. So it was that experience of touching my heart and crying. Like something was so shifted so deeply inside of me, as well as speaking of chanting the inauguration for this event, as, as we were speaking about in the beginning of, of our meeting here was a chant, right? So they inaugurated this event with a chant and it was about, I would say about five women who got together and it sounded like a stadium of like galloping horses. <laughs> I remember thinking of that at the time. It was the most powerful sound I had ever heard. And they were doing a Vedic chant invocation and they were all women. And, and so that, so the fact that the sound was possible and so powerful, and also the fact that it was all women in what in India was like largely a male world really um, also touched me. And so I knew from that moment that I wanted, I wanted to learn that. And then also in that first trip, Brian, Mr. Jessica Char, he has a beautiful way of connecting with the beings around him. Mm. And he did that with me. And I'm sure he did it with everyone. I wasn't alone. I know like many people say when you're in a, a learning situation with, with sir, like everyone feels like they're talk. He's talking directly to them. Um, you know, he sort of kept, I want to say not capitalizes, but he, he highlights something about you that he finds intriguing. And I think also that he knows you identify with and you might have some pride in. Mm -hmm. He sees that and he highlights that. And so it makes you feel good about yourself. 
What it was made it? me feel great about myself. What was it? What was it about you that he kind of latched onto? So it was like the second day that we were there, second day out of four, no, two weeks, and he wanted to. He was teaching a session on how, although Krishnamacharya is very well known for making yoga and asana accessible to people who cannot do them, there's this whole other side of Krishnamacharya where he make yoga practices extremely difficult and intensify them for people who could do them. So he was looking around. He goes, Uttanasana? Uttanasana, where are you? <laughs> and that became my nickname. Uttanasana? He didn't really, yes. He didn't know my name for a few years. I think he would call me Denise or something. And then he finally got my, that my name was Danielle. But he saw that that was, that was um, something that I could do very easily. I'm born flexible. And I was young. Right. So you're As, doing like a standing forward bend with straight legs and probably fly yes, for pancake. And... Exactly. So, so this is what he did. He said, uh, will you please come up here? I, I want to um, demonstrate with your help what my, my father would do for someone like you. Who's very physically and, capable. Yes. So he said, okay, now do Uttanasana. Where do you feel it? And I said, mm, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, now inhale for 10, exhale for 10, inhale for 10, exhale for 10. Through the sequence, inhale, raise your arms for 10 counts, exhale, bend down for 10 counts, inhale, stand up for 10 counts, exhale, lower your arms for 10 counts. And where do you feel it? Nowhere really. Okay, now inhale for 10, exhale for 20, inhale for 10, exhale for 20. And now where do you feel it? And I said, well, I'm definitely a little bit out of breath and I'm starting to feel it, I don't know, a little bit in, in my body. I said, okay, now inhale for 10, oh, ohm for 20, and then like hold after oming for 20 or something like that. He's like, where do you feel? I'm like, oh, my back. <laughs> and I, I can't breathe so well. Mm. So like replacing the long exhalation with the sound. Yes. So doing a forward bend with ohm. Yes. And then pausing after. That's, I mean, it's such a simple sounding thing, but it's incredible how much more strenuous that is when you start replacing the exhale with sound and adding breath retentions. Yes. And so that is the point of what he was teaching is that in order to intensify asana, and I teach very much like this when I teach challenging classes at my yoga center, we don't need to give more challenging asanas, especially as we age and our, our bodies don't bounce back so easily from overdoing. Right, so we combine yoga with asanas, with sound, with extended inhale or exhale, or hold after inhale or hold after exhale, with techniques like krama, 
on the breathing or trauma in the movement. And then suddenly people start to feel the intended effect of the asanas. Whereas otherwise you can do many things and asana at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Me mentally. Yeah. You could totally be not in your body as well. And, uh, performing an asana from the outside that looks perfect. That's what I was doing. When you put the focus on the breath or making a sound, it forces you to be present to what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It brings your mind right there. So that was, you know, I think for, for me as somebody who was new to the KYM and, uh, you know, new to that world, it made me feel a connection, which is what we want to feel with our students in, in order to keep the, the curiosity and the sort of will and trust and, and all those important aspects for transformation alive. So that happens. Mm. That happens. And it was the first of many times that that happened. Did you have any personal interaction with him outside of the class? Um, in that first couple of weeks? Or later? Oh, yeah. Very many, very many times later. Um, in, the, in that first class, no. I mean, outside of class, not that I remember. But I think over the years, we, I was, because I went back so frequently, um, you know, he, he started to get to know me. So I have so many stories. Um, but maybe because we don't have all day, I'll choose, I'll choose one that's related to the story that I told. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to see if we could get a sense of what he was like as a, as a person. And so if you got a story that would yes, of give course. us a sense of that, that would be wonderful. Okay. Let me choose. May I share two? Of course. Okay, so I'm going to give you one example of what he was like as a, a teacher mm. and then another of what he was like as a person. And I'll start with the one as a teacher because it's some, I would like to keep the thread of the Uttanasana story alive. Um, a lot of Europeans were studying with Mr. Jessica Char and there was a pair, a couple of pretty eminent German psychotherapists that were there. And I did happen to know them because I think we shared the same, not the same flat, but we stayed in the same building. And we were in the waiting room of the KYM when it was a smaller building. And in the waiting room of the KYM, the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandiram, you have people who are coming there because they're unwell in some way. So you'll have some people in wheelchairs, some people who cannot walk, <clears throat> you know, people who are, who are not well. And so I was there and Mr. Jessica Char came in and, you know, he said hello to me. And then the Martin and Imogen, I remember their names where they came in and Jessica Char wanted to introduce me to them. Everyone else there was Indian. So, you know, he was kind that way. He wanted people to feel comfortable and he had ways of doing that. So he said, oh, please, Martin and Imogen, meet. 
I think he was still calling me Denise at that time. He's like, meet Denise. She can do, she can do Uttanasana so well. And I was mortified. <laughs> I was so mortified. So I'm standing there and he goes, please, Denise, <laughs> do Uttanasana for Martin and Imogen. And I was like, <laughs> so, I mean, I did what Sir said, you know, I was a pretty good student that way. And so I did it. And then they were like, wow, <laughs> that was wonderful. And I'm like, okay, thank you, sir. I got your message. Like I got your message. So at first he highlights that thing that you identify, or for me, this is how learning went with me. And it was different for everyone. But he highlighted the thing that you took pri you took pride in yes he yeah. highlighted that to make the connection and then in a very kind however firm lesson he showed me it was time to move on right cuz because you, I, the same thing i had pride in then i had shame yeah like you must have surrounding a little ridiculous uh, showing off this posture for these people when you, yeah. Yeah. These people who were like, you know, therapists who were there to learn yoga to like help their men <laughs> mentally ill patients heal. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was one of, one of my formative teaching experiences that I had with him, even though he was not my teacher there in the open. You know, mm -hmm. he did it. He did it in such a, a beautiful way. And so I learned that from him. It's important as a teacher to connect with your students based on what, what they love about uh, themselves or what they're identifying, what they have pride in. Like Jessica Char would often go to somebody and say, I really love your shirt. Sir, wore the same shirt. Well, the same, he, I think he probably had five of the same shirts. Yeah, like you know, the engineer's the shirt, short sleeve yeah. collared shirt with pens in the pocket. <laughs> you got it. Exactly. Every day. You know, but he'd tell somebody he liked their shirt. And, um, you know, that was just to connect, make them feel good. I'm sure he did like their shirt. You know, he, he could appreciate the beauty. And, but shirts weren't his thing. You know? There, uh, there was a post yesterday, uh, our, my friend, Larry Payne, I don't know if you know, Larry, he I also don't know him personally, but I know of him. I, I have some, uh, a friend or colleague or two who've taught in his program. Right. So he also, um, spent time with Desika Char and he posted a photo on Instagram yesterday, or the day before where it's him and Indra Devi with Deskachar at Larry's house after a party celebration that Larry threw for Krishnamacharya's hundredth birthday. So mm. it's, it, it, it's a youngish Larry Payne, a very elderly Indra Devi and sir, Mr. Deskachar and Larry and Indra, two Westerners are wearing full like Indian garb, and there's there's Desikachar in his like engineer's mm -hmm. short sleeve button up shirt with pens in his pocket. And I just yes. thought that was such a funny image of the two Westerners wearing all decked out in Indian garb. And then there's the Indian mm -hmm. wearing this kind of like nerdy Western clothing. That 
sums it up. It's so sweet. Like there's it no, is. there's no kind of pretense there. Yes. So let me, um, speaking of the sweet and no pretense, let me tell you the other story that's not really teaching, but how he was. Well, I mean, teaching is how he was, but we, I hosted him here in Long Island in how to be the mid, maybe the first decade of this millennium, maybe 2005 or so, I would say. And I wanted him to meet my parents and my parents wanted to meet him because, you know, here I am going off and learning with him and his family every year. And he basically came to their house. So he, we ordered an Indian dinner and, you know, he ate very simple and sattvic. So we ordered from the Indian restaurant. They came over and they ate. And my dad did this painting. I don't know if you could see behind me. This is the painting of Krishnamacharya. It's so beautiful. I didn't know and, your dad did that. I've seen it in your videos and stuff. But. Yes, that's yeah. my dad. So, and sir loved this painting. Hmm. So, all right, so this is going to turn into two stories. Okay, so he was with my dad and, you know, looking at some of his paintings because he really loved this painting. And, and apparently he said to my, my father, not while I was there, but your, your daughter is going to be a yoga superstar. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, you know, that's not his language. That's not his language, but my dad does tend to paint like celebrities, political figures, sport figures. And so I think that probably Sir saw a lot of that around their house. And so he picked up on that languaging so that my dad could understand that, you know, this is going to be something that I was going to do and, and I was going to be effective at doing it. That was his way of saying it, but that made my dad really, really happy. As a matter of fact, my dad, who's a Catholic, he was like, you know, he reminds me of the Pope. Like, Jessica Char brought that out in my father. Like, nobody, that's, nobody reminds my dad of the Pope. <laughs> but that's what he said. Jessica Char, you know, he, he reminds me of the Pope. He's translucent, he said. He's translucent. And then There's they, also that yeah. quality, like, he's blessing you as well. You know, like he's um, he's seeing something in you, and and praising it, which is uh, something that we don't often get in our culture from elders or teachers. You know that element of praise and blessing. Uh, yeah, and that's I've had someone do that with me, and it's just uh, it, it's like it fills up some longing I had my whole life for like the blessing from a respected elder. Yeah. Mm. I can imagine what that felt like. Mm. Yeah, it really, I just keep saying it, it touched me. And that's, that's what kept me with, with him and, and his, his family and the system. It really does. It, it touches me so deeply inside of my heart. And so I can relate to what you're saying. <clears throat> So he's at your family home and your father is kind of blown away by this little Indian man 
that comes over. Mm-hmm. Looks looks like an unassuming engineer. <laughs> yes. But and somehow, then we have yeah. Then we have dinner and he's like, Okay, gotta go see you later. Bye. You know, as Indians do. <laughs> so it was just this little encapsulated experience. And then no matter what, every single time he wanted to introduce me to someone after that, because he can see how much my dad loves me and that we had, you know, we have a positive relationship, he would say, Oh, this is Danielle. He didn't make me do Uttanasana anymore. (laughs) (laughs) He said, her father is the best artist in the world. You have to see the painting he did of my father. (laughs) And so that was the evolution. If I have to, if I have to really hold it, hold this, how did he, light your lamp again and again through the time that you knew him. It was that. So that would evolve. That evolved the whole time I knew him. And then, you know, toward the end, it would turn into something else. That's great because um, it's more a reflection of how you're evolving as a person. And so you're not always locked into being Danielle, the one who's graded Uttanasana. No. And so it's maybe a way of seeing your growth, but maybe a way of also encouraging your growth too, in a very subtle, um, elegant way, I think. It's a beautiful word for it. Yes, it is definitely elegant. And it is living and shifting through the time. Hmm. And I think that's something that we as yoga therapists have to be careful about is that we can get locked into who we know a person to be and not see their progress and and continue to support it over over many years and so you know he really taught me how to do that see the student as a new new being always always evolving always shifting, always transforming, and so that you can continue to serve the purpose of being, uh, you know, a vehicle for them to see their light and remove whatever is, is covering, covering it. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful, by the way. Thanks for sharing that. I'm so happy to be able to spread the energy of this beautiful man who's influenced us, you know, in really life-changing directions. So, Well, you know, I never, like, when you're talking about discovering Ashtanga and how that really lit things up for you with yoga, I had the same experience. I'd been... Um, kind of a yoga dilettante for many years, just going to all these different studios and classes, like searching, 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 I think, for mm. what I, in my heart, maybe knew was there, but didn't consciously know anything about. And then when I found Ashtanga, it's like I found something. Like there's something about that focus on moving with the breath and the rhythm of it that allowed me to really dive deep into it. But, uh, and then like you, I I started to teach it. I was doing leg primary classes, um, meeting with these senior Ashtanga vinyasa teachers. But pretty soon after, you know, within a year or two, I realized that uh, there was limits 
in in that system um especially because i didn't find that until like my mid-30s and i had Mm -hmm. sustained a lifetime of athletic injuries and stuff and just beating my body Mm. up so i started to kind of look around uh and see what else was there and those Ashtanga teachers told me I might want to check out Iyengar yoga because it was a more quote unquote therapeutic approach and they adapted asanas. So I went and checked that out, but never found what I was looking for there. But I got really curious once I'd learned that Patabi Joyce and Iyengar both had the same teacher. Mm-hmm. So I started to do my research into who is this guy Krishnamacharya and how could these two vastly different styles of yoga come from the same source? Yes. And of course, like you, I found out, well, it's because he taught everyone individually and Patabi Joyce and Iyengar studied with him when they were very young and Iyengar pretty much developed his own thing anyway. And so I started to learn about the complexities of how Krishnacharya's yoga has been represented in the mainstream. And of course, this led me to find students of Desikachar. And that's really where... I was touched for the first time. Uh, I remember the first time I, I practiced with my teacher in this approach where the breath was central, the asanas were very simple. Uh, we always did preparatory movements before holding an asana. So there's a strong connection to the rhythm of the breath. And mm-hmm. at the end of that practice, I was like weeping. It touched yeah. something so deep in me. And it felt like a homecoming. Like after all these years of searching, I had found, I found the thing I was looking for, really. Mm. And, um, you know, and then in learning about Deskachar, I never got the chance to meet him, because by the time I discovered him, uh, he had already stopped teaching. Mm. Uh, So I sought out as many of his students as I've been able to find, you know, and I keep looking for them and trying to connect with them to um, get as close to the source as possible, I think. And because he taught everyone differently, everyone else has collected these different gems from him. Yes. So I see myself as kind of an anthropologist going out and, and seeing how his teachings show up in different people's lives and how they've interpreted them and, and all of that. Um, and one of the things that, you know, is most interesting to me is now yoga therapy is become a thing. Uh, there are registering bodies who are defining what yoga therapy is. Um, and when I look at yoga therapy, there's actually a lot of different approaches in there. Some of it appears to be more like a physiotherapy to me. Mm-hmm. Now, Deskachar started the KYM in 1976. And as far as I know, it was the first kind of yoga therapy clinic that was open to the public and non-religious and, and all of that. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, for you, how do you distinguish yoga therapy from yoga or hatha yoga? Oh, such an important question. So while both yoga and yoga therapy are stemming from the same sacred texts, the Vedas, right? And using the same, and the Yoga Sutra, and using the same healing models, 
they are limited in their efficacy when we are using them, applying them in a generalized context to a group of people because the symptoms will be different for everyone. The cause of the symptoms will be different for everyone. So therefore the goal is actually different for everyone and the tools that we're using in order to get the person to the goal is going to be different. The sum total of everything that's in the body, in the prana level, in the intellectual mind level, in the behavioral level, in the emotional level is very different from person to person. So the same mantra that will get somebody to be, let's say, have more of an experience of joy in their life may very well upset someone else. The same breathing practice that will calm someone will agitate someone else. The same asana that will be good for someone's back pain and and help it to heal or maybe even cure will hurt someone else's back. So I, I really see clearly that the distinction between yoga and yoga therapy is we can be using all of these best ancient Indian healing models. However, everybody is different. So the same practice and tools that work on one person and maybe make them to get better can actually harm and worsen someone else. And that's what happens in sort of in a group setting. I think yoga therapy at its, you know, is, is sort of a, a misnomer in many ways because all yoga was therapy, but that's when it was being applied in this very close teacher-student context where the teacher knows the student teacher knows what the student's struggling with. And so I think today it's become a term that is used to distinguish what we are doing with regards to healing and how effective it can be. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something I think about as someone who applies yoga in a therapeutic way, but I'm not a registered yoga therapist. I'm not recognized by any of the governing bodies that exist now. Mm-hmm. And what I've always felt is that in this approach that Deskachar and now his students have passed on, that the yoga, when approached in this way and applied in this way, is inherently therapeutic yes Um, and for me it's been about learning from as many of the teachers as i can but i don't feel it's so necessary to go through some formalized training in order to get a certificate in this Mm -hmm. but of course you then have to learn how to distinguish what you do what i do from the mainstream perception of what a yoga teacher, what the role of a yoga teacher is and what the role of yoga is in someone's life. And so I find myself uh, struggling sometimes in how to distinguish myself, how to explain that what I'm doing is the way it maybe it was always meant to be done, but is different Mm -hmm. from the way most people have experienced yoga. Yes. 
So I'm saying things like a therapeutic approach to yoga that's based in a lineage, um, but it, it's very complicated. And sometimes I wonder, well, maybe I should just go do like somebody's training and get an IAYT designation, just so it's really clear to people. Right. Because <laughs> that's the way that, um, I don't know, the lens that people see you through often is through this what your credentials are. Yeah, like official credentials, right? Like you are the, the letters after your name. Yeah. I find that a bit frustrating, but uh, I don't know. I'm also not so resistant to uh, playing the game if that's what's required in order for me to help people. I don't know what your yes, thoughts are on and that. I think, yeah. So, all right maybe I'll, I'll say it this way. So if I look in my little folder of certificates that I got from learning at the KYM, deal with the body, heal with the mind, yoga for women, the yoga of Krishnamacharya, all Vedic chanting and all these certificates, um, that was before I took what was a formal yoga therapy training. And I did accumulate a lot of knowledge that I use when I am serving as a yoga therapist, very much. There's a lot of crossover in what I learned as well. Uh, what really helped me as a yoga therapist was the idea of the pathologies that people would come with and what to do and what not to do mm -hmm. and actual case presentations of how to and some of the case presentations were on paper when we were just learning this theoretically and then actually going and having the opportunity to observe yoga therapy sessions just as an observer as an observer and then to actually integrate and teach people that was i think a big turning point for me as a yoga therapist, although the healing models were there, um, the study of the sutras and learning of chanting was there for me. When, when I saw that and, and went through that process, it was very helpful for me to be able to apply this in an individualized way because somebody, you know, somebody would come with, let's say this would be in the beginning, um, an autoimmune dysfunction. And so I could look at my case study. I could look at the do's and don'ts for autoimmune dysfunctions. I could look at the case studies I had on autoimmune dysfunctions. Then I can go through my internship notes on people who have had autoimmune disorders. And so I felt like I had more confidence on, on what to do with these people at first. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that helps, but I, I do feel like going through a yoga therapy training for me was very helpful in order to have the confidence that whoever comes in this room and someone is about to come in, um, we didn't even talk about mantra yet. So we have to do this again, but whoever comes in here, I'm like, I know what to do, but I don't necessarily think you need yoga therapy training to do that. Like I know people who channel spirits who can see and, and do, or, you know, people who synthesize like yourself, yoga and some other really potent healing modalities so that you have, you know, intuition and, and, and vision on, on how to work with people. So 
No, I think that's that's a really good thing to consider um, because you know when I'm working with someone, I'm very aware of my limitations and and I draw on my own experience and studies that I've done of psychology and that, but it's still quite limited. Like if someone comes with an autoimmune disease, I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what's right for them. I know how to support them, but I would definitely um, recommend that they see someone who has more knowledge in that area for sure. And so I can see how doing a formalized yoga therapy training would allow you to work with a broader range of people and, and have some confidence there. So hmm. just, I wonder, did you do that at the KYM or did you do that in America? I did it. I went through the KYF at the time. And I, although I attended some of the North American training programs, which were absolutely wonderful and in, in what they had to offer us, my training was in India with, um, Mr. Jessica Char and his son and a group of students that I learned with for you know some years together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you've got someone coming in now. You've got an appointment. I do. All right. I well, feel like this conversation, we have to just put maybe a ellipsis. Yeah. To be continued. Yes. Um, Cause I definitely want to talk to you about chanting and the role of chanting and yoga therapy and healing. And um, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about group classes that you do for kids. I'm super mm. interested in that. Mm. Uh, so I hope that we can, maybe we can make this an ongoing conversation. Um, I don't know. And let me know when you're available. But uh, I want to thank you for the time that you spent now. It's been so wonderful to hear about your time with Deskachar and your journey as a teacher. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. My day is enhanced from having this time with you. And um, yeah, let's pick this up. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Be well. You too. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.